Hello, listeners. I'm Andrew Carpenter. And I'm Eric Lang. Is it me, or does information seem to be progressing faster these days? Just when I thought I was getting a handle on using the appropriate meme in our social media outreach, the world throws us AI, chat GPT, and machine learning. If you're like me and you need someone to walk through this stuff, then this episode is for you. Luckily, we have a guest on the show today who is a lecturer in the Cognitive Science Department and Data Science Institute at UC San Diego. He is also the Director of Data Science at the Volunteer Transportation Center in New York State. Kyle will help us understand how data science and artificial intelligence presents opportunities within the transit industry. Kyle Shannon, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Can you share a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So I was originally uh, studied to be a neuroscientist when I was at college. And uh, after I graduated and worked for a couple of years, this new explosive field of data science was kind of coming into the headlines. There was a Harvard Business Review article that titled it the sexiest job of the 21st century. So I saw that and my ears kind of perked up a little bit. So I, I slowly transitioned into data science and went back to school, uh, graduate school to get more training in computational sciences. And that's how I started getting into this whole field. It was around a couple years down the road that uh, I teamed up with my good friends, uh, Jonathan Mangola, uh, who is my, my business partner, essentially. And we started a company to try and facilitate non-emergency medical transportation uh, using you know, software and uh, data science and analytics. And it was around that time that we kind of hooked up with uh, Sam Purrington from the Volunteer Transportation Center. And over the years, we kind of partnered up and um, we kind of rolled our software into their organization. And we're really trying to make this opportunity of volunteerism in the space of NEMT um, possible and to kind of produce a good model that we can share with people nationwide. You know, a lot of the work that, that I do there is not just software development and, and kind of working on that side, but it winds up being in the analytics of this rich database that we've created with all the volunteers that, that we have uh, with us at VTC. Um, and I kind of use that trip data and I couple it with uh, census data and other types of uh, disparate data sets uh, to try and understand the impact of volunteer NEMT on uh, rural semi-urban America as it relates to health impacts and uh, you know social determinants of health. So that's a lot of what I'm really interested in is, is how volunteerism, NEMT, and social determinants of health kind of tie together. And what I teach at UCSD kind of part-time is computational sciences like data science, um, database management, machine learning classes. But everything that I do when I teach is really revolved around solving problems in the real world. So I really try and connect those two parts of my my work together. And this is how it led me to meeting you, Andrew and Eric, and, and talking with you guys today. Excellent. Yeah, we, um, or I had the chance to, I guess I didn't talk to Kyle, but I listened to him and Kevin Chambers talk about computer stuff at um, CTA's expo. And they lost me pretty quickly, but it was fun to listen to anyway. And try to grapple with what they were talking about. This can feel pretty far removed from a transit manager who's just trying to make pull out every morning and transit planner who's trying to figure out their uh, bus routes, the best bus routes for their system. And so why would we talk about AI, machine learning, and data science in transit? 
honestly, when you kind of think about the explosion of, of AI and machine learning, ChatGPT, we'll talk about those terms a little bit later, but this, this big umbrella term of, of AI, maybe, it's prevalent in all of our society. And when you think about the impact that transportation has um, in everyday lives of, of people, um, there's absolutely um, no reason that these two things aren't going to be smashing into each other. And we really have to kind of figure out how they work, you know, the challenges like data privacy, security, uh, equitability across um, services, and, you know, how do we use technology to facilitate better transportation and ultimately to, to improve people's lives? And if you look at kind of the history of transit, uh, technology has really been at the forefront, you know, like in the late, I mean, we'll go all the way back to the, you know, Model T Ford and <laughs> horse-drawn carriages and railroad, but, you know, like this back as, as early as the, uh, late 20th century, you had like the initial computerization of ticketing, scheduling, and, and operational approaches to, to transit. And then in the early 2000s, you had you know, GPS kind of coming online and you're able to get real-time tracking of uh, transportation and start to collect that data. Um, in the early 2010s, you really had this big adoption of data analytics and trying to understand from this rich data that people have been collecting how can we optimize services and transportation? And in the mid-2010s, we really saw this shift towards not just analytics and, and Excel spreadsheets, but how can we leverage you know, the umbrella term of AI? And um, you might have seen like really simple chat bots coming online. You'd see kind of semi-automated ticketing systems, um, improved scheduling, scheduling that maybe took into account you know, weather and, and other um factors from other data sets that you would want to incorporate to produce better scheduling. And ultimately, that leads us to where we are today in the early 2020s with this emergence of chat GPT and um, really intelligent systems where um, you have computer vision for increased safety and uh, ticketing procedures. Um, you have much better use of optimization of scheduling. You have chat bots that might be indistinguishable if you're talking to a human or a computer. And the technology is going so fast nowadays, it's becoming in one way easier to employ and use, but it's also becoming very hard to keep up and understand what's going on. And so um, that's why I think that, you know, this kind of podcast, we're trying to talk about these things and can try and you know, educate people on AI and the umbrella term of AI um, is a really great thing. And so honestly, I love to see the democratization of AI tools and of this information because ultimately we're trying to better uh, human life with it. And so this is why this is such an important conversation for all of us to be having. And I think, you know, we've kind of already maybe jumped a step ahead. I was wondering, can you we go back to just defining some of those kind of umbrella terms? I often hear AI and machine learning kind of thrown around um, interchangeably. Can you give us a sense of what those differences are? So I think there's a couple of different ways to slice this. Uh, one way that might be the easiest is from like an academic point of view. AI, artificial intelligence, is this um, field of study where you're trying to build intelligent computerized systems that um, could mimic human intelligence, uh, could mimic intelligence found in, in bees or really any type of intelligent system. And it's a field of research where you're trying to push forward human knowledge and the boundaries of what humans know. And from that, you get a lot of tools um, and, and interesting research that can be used um, in an application uh, from an application point of view. Machine learning is a subset of AI. It is a field of research as well. Um, and it's one way of doing artificial intelligence. And 
machine learning is has become such a ubiquitous term today in large part because in order to do machine learning, you have to have a lot of data and look at the rise of inter- the internet and all of our systems that collect data. We now have a lot of data, computers that are very fast, and we can make use of that data. And that's why the approach of artificial intelligence through machine learning has been very big and given us things like ChatGPT. Uh, ChatGPT is just one form of uh, a machine learning system. And it's what you might have heard, heard the term of an LLM or a large language model. Um, it's essentially, uh, you can kind of think of it as if you were to take Wikipedia and uh, Britannica dictionary and um, chat rooms and just all this data about human speaking and you were to learn from it, you would then have some system that could guess you know, what you might say. So for example, like, if I was really good friends with you, Andrew, known you for such a long time, you know, decades, and Eric, I, n- I never knew you, right? I just met you. I would have already had so much time talking to Andrew, learning about his speech patterns, the words he uses, the things he talks about. I, you might be able to say that I could complete his sentences as he speaks, right? Where it would be very hard for me to complete your sentences as you speak, Eric, because I've never met you before. And so you can think of ChatGPT as having learned from this big corpus of words and online articles and websites, um, digital newspapers. And so if you propose a question, it does a very good job of predicting what the answer that might be and what words to use and in what order um, and how to give those words grammar and structure. doesn't necessarily mean that means that it knows what you're or understands what you're talking about. But um, so that's, you know, ChatGPT is just one form of a machine learning model. There's many machine learning models, but that's one form. And then out of left field is this term data science. And, and data science is probably the big umbrella term. Um, I like to think of data science as maybe the scientific way of extracting value from data. And so data science is nowadays, there's like data science departments, institutes, universities, and it's becoming a field of study. But ultimately, data science is an approach to using tools like machine learning, um, like chat GPT, like um, advances from AI, it uses these tools and many other tools in math, statistics, computer science to solve real world problems. That's a really big distinction I think is important to make between something like AI, machine learning and data science. Data science is the application of tools to solve a very specific problem um, in the real world that you care about. And it's not as much about trying to push the boundaries of human knowledge in some way like AI might be. Um, of course, there's a lot of different definitions and people have you know, all sorts of different opinions. But um, from a practical point of view, I think it's a good distinction for, for people to make. And you know, data science is an umbrella term. We could have a whole podcast on the different ways to analyze that definition and uh, all the different jobs that come under data science. And we'll talk about some of them during this podcast. But um, I think those distinctions at a high level are, are good to keep in mind um, for these type of terms. You just talk about definitions forever. So as far as the transit world, how do you apply this whole concept to the transit world? And then, um, you know, would that be through machine learning or uh, some other term that we haven't covered yet? Uh, Yeah, I think that there's a lot of problems in the transit world and a lot of ways to optimize and, and, and make things better. And there's a lot of ways to study the problems in the transit world. And so you could use AI and data science, machine learning, um, as mechanisms to solve some of these problems. Um, I think AI winds up maybe being a little too general of a term and 
maybe not being as focused. I think you have to kind of look at it from a problem point of view. So, you know, why is data science, analytics, machine learning, like these things relevant to the transit world? Um, one, because there's a problem that needs to be solved. We're trying to optimize transit, make it safer, more accessible to more people. Um, so there's a good problem to solve. But on the other hand, you can have a good problem to solve, but if you don't have the data to solve it, it really doesn't matter. Luckily, in the transit world, we have a lot of data, um, tons of data. And and today, we've had the type of data we have access to we've never had before. And so it allows us to solve and at least work on a lot of these problems. The problem with the transit world is that anytime you want to make a, you want to make a change or you want to do something, it's extremely expensive and involves lots of people. Um, you're going to be affecting also real world people. Like you just can't kind of test these things easily on a computer. You have to kind of put it out there in the real world and, and see what happens. Um, so that, that's kind of difficult. But um, I mean, there's a whole list of things we can we can talk about relevancy uh, to transit world, um, understanding passenger expectations. So you can use just pure data analytics um, and data science to study. What it is that matters to different passengers, right? Passengers in a city compared to passengers in a semi-urban or a rural area or, or a tribal area, they all have different desires and, and needs from transit. And um, understanding that it's not a one-size-fit-all approach um, is good, right? I, I can say that, and most people would probably agree with me. But in order to really solve that problem and and, and make a difference, we have to uh, quantify what those past your expectations are. And so using things like data science and analytics, we can begin to uncover and understand um, what those expectations are and the magnitude of them so that we can apply them um, in real world solutions and make sure that we're solving them. Um, like for example, service accessibility, um, how you measure accessibility to services in an urban area is probably extremely different than how you would do it in a rural area. Um, you know, you have different things you want to understand about that. Like walkability might not be as big of a factor in rural as it is in an urban area uh, to a transit stop. So there's always different kind of ways to look at relevancy to, to transit. But the key thing to always consider is um, what data do you have available to you? And that can be a, uh, uh, you know, what types of people are you studying? You know, are they rural people, uh, urban environment uh, population? And also what type of problem are you trying to solve? Um, like environmental sustainability, is it worth spending a lot of money for uh, EVs or do we not do that? There's a lot of relevance here, but it's always dependent upon what the problem you're trying to solve is and the questions you're asking. What would be a quick example of how you would see this out in the real world with a transit agency employing uh, any one of these tools? If you're maybe looking at it from the point of view of a mobility manager, they really care about accessibility. Like if they're going to be planning like a new route um, or updating a route. And you're like, a, if you can kind of like, so I always love taking, um, I think like a good data scientist and, and a good practitioner of these tools tends to have a lot of empathy for the users that they're trying to solve problems for. So if you think about the problem from a mobility manager point of view, um, their task is to optimize some route or update a route or add a new route or something, right, to service people. And so what tools do they have at their disposal to make sure they're doing a good job? They can look at a map. They can look at maybe some census data. They can kind of plot a route with their hand and it might look good, but how do they actually know that they're doing a good job, right? How can they measure that? Can they test it? Like, you know, you can't just kind of build a new route, test it and oops, didn't you do a good job? Let's change it again. So, you know, um, if we can build tools to help facilitate that decision-making process, 
mobility managers can make um, better informed decisions and be confident in those decisions. Um, and uh, so that's like some of the t- one of the tools that we're building right now uh, at VTC for uh, our mobility managers is to try and quantify accessibility to transit stops and to healthcare um, in rural areas um, using many different types of data um, and building it out an index score that will allow them to understand if they were to place a route here, this is the impact to the accessibility score for these areas. And so people like that want to do a good job. They want to help people. That's why they're in that job. You know, I think it's a pretty fair assessment to make. And so it's about enabling them to make those good decisions with good tools and use things like data science and machine learning and analytics to craft and engineer these tools uh, that they can employ and use. And so that's you know one example of how this might work. In our work, uh, there's kind of this just foundational challenge for particularly lower resource rural agencies and trying to kind of modernize and bring in and, and, and adapt these types of processes and skills. Wondering if you could kind of enlighten us on how that is the AI and machine learning and, and data science in general is being kind of adopted and integrated into rural agencies. I mean, I think in a lot of ways they're not doing it and it's not their fault at, at all. I mean, it, it, it's difficult because there's a, tends to be a high barrier to entry to using these kind of tools and to using solutions because like people in maybe in a small organization are experts in their day-to-day processes. Like they know what's going on. They kind of know their, their user population. They understand the problems they're trying to solve. Um, and somebody who let's say has a technological solution, um, could be a company or it could be an individual or a consultant or, or something. They, they have these tools that are disposal and these knowledge. And the problem, like obviously money is one, right? Like paying for this stuff. But another problem is like, how do you connect these two people? That can be very difficult because the person who has the technology has to be very good at understanding the domain of where these people are working and how to apply these tools to solve a problem. But also the onus is on the person with the problem to understand what that problem is and to help explain it and to you know understand that they might need to have certain data that they don't have to solve that problem. Machine learning, data science, all this type of stuff, it's not a magic wand. Um, you can't just wave it and it fixes problems. Um, it requires an investment um, of time and resources, not just money. And so hopefully nowadays with the democratization of machine learning and data science, stuff is becoming a little bit easier, but the domain side of that stuff is still so difficult to connect those people to solve a problem. Um, But services are getting cheaper, easier to use, um, easier to deploy. Um, And we can get into some of those specifics um, a little bit later in the the podcast if you want. Um, But that's kind of how I feel um, some of the issues are for um, integrating these things into rural environments and these kind of smaller organizations. You don't have the budget of like MTA New York. First and foremost, kind of the, the budget constraints and then also just kind of the real world realities of, you know, not necessarily knowing how to approach incorporating a lot of these um, tools and, and skills into an agency, but also maybe not understanding or having you know, examples of how they might be deployed and particularly for, for what use. Could you actually provide some examples on, you know, what are the outcomes that these that data science or examples of where it's been really crucial and really benefited an, a- an agency, particularly uh, a community? 
Um, I think I think it was Amtrak that created the Ask Julie or Ask Alice. It was like a chatbot uh, several years ago. It wasn't like ChatGPT, but it was a way that allowed writers to ask questions, um, look at their 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 scheduled fare, and make sure that um, if they're going to miss their train, they could reschedule it. This was at the time really a really good system, and it was particularly good because it matched up well with what their user population wanted, right? People who are maybe taking the Amtrak in the city might be a little bit have a, might have a, a better disposition to using technology every day and would be more comfortable maybe using a chatbot like that. But that kind of technological solution wouldn't work very well maybe in a, in a rural area where things might move slower. There's not that need to like get in contact with, you know, a chatbot or, or a person instantly to change something. Um, there's also maybe not that same familiarity with using technology in that way. They might want to rather talk with somebody on the phone. So um, a lot of these technological advances have really been at the forefront in urban areas because there's that adoption and that that desire from the user populations um, to use it. I think then maybe these smaller, or, smaller organization settings and smaller communities, you kind of have two ways to approach these problems. One is from the staffing point of view, we're trying to build an internal tool to help staff um, do better things. And there's been software companies that have created um, software that has been sold to um, these small communities for, for long periods of time. I mean, a lot of them are, um, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, even you mentioned Kevin Chambers, he had his uh, ride sheet program uh, through a RTAP. And that's a great solution for a very small community that might have been using Excel spreadsheets. Um, and there's a right way to use Excel to manage data and a wrong way to do it. And <laughs> we can go in, in depth on that. But, you know, they were probably using the, the alt key to put a second line in a cell, which is a big no-no. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's like all these things that they're probably doing because Excel is a visual tool, but it's really meant to manage data. Um, but they're using it visually. And so, you know, a tool like that ride sheet um, might give them a very low cost way to have better quality data and have some standards around how they, they, they use that data. And so that would be a really good example of how the staff can be um, optimized with a better tool. Um, one example might be like on the, on the end user point of view. So these might be uh, bus drivers or they could be like volunteer uh, drivers, for example, at VTC, or they could be even clients. Um, you know, instead of maybe having a email with a PDF that they have to print out and then look at um, their trip for that day and all the clients they're going to have to pick up, and if there's a change to that trip, what do they have to start writing it by you know writing it in by pen you know, by pen on paper, and it becomes kind of hard to manage. Um, providing them with the free mobile app that just gives them that schedule, and when there's updates to that schedule, it gets pushed through, and then they can visually you know tap to accept those changes or that they've received them. Um, they can more easily view their trip history. So tools like that, while not very sexy, maybe, um, they're allowing this kind of bridge into one day having more optimized tools. Because you can imagine um, when there is AI, um, machine learning, that's kind of helping to manage this process and the driver can't just necessarily call somebody, you know, there's an, a semi-automated process that's, that's handling this. If they're not comfortable yet with technology or, or, or having used it, that can become very scary and, and very difficult to, to employ and, and use successfully, uh, which ultimately means that the client suffers who wanted that, that transportation. Um, so 
those are kind of uh, two ways. And then a third way might be um, if you have like a fleet that you're managing and you want to have the most amount of uptime, uh, it used to be just, well, when it broke down, you towed it back and fixed it and that was the uptime. But uh, through just years of having these uh, automakers and, and larger organizations have fleet management software that would try and that would track what parts are being used, when they're being serviced, um, when is that part likely to fail and perhaps trying to uh, phase it out and replace it uh, just before it's predicted to fail. Things like that have provided better opportunities for um, helping small organizations better manage their fleets and having more uptime with their with their fleet. So there's lots of different ways to, to use these types of solutions. Again, a lot of it depends on the problem, the data, and the end user. End user being the staff, um, clients, or drivers, or, or even the bus you know, in, in your fleet that you're managing. So um, ultimately what it comes down to is what's the problem that currently needs to be solved? And that's the starting point is, is asking a good question. A few years ago, uh, someone from a company, I can't remember their name, reached out about uh, putting sensors in engines. And so then uh, once the temperature does something a little bit different in the engine, then they can tell that there's a, a pending failure or like a critical issue that the bus just need or truck it was for trucking but um the vehicle needs to just pull to the side and get serviced right there and so they can pre-diagnose basically what is happening and um you know get the vehicles out of service before there is a much bigger challenge that they have to deal with so it was cool to see what the predictive value of a lot of this can end up being and how that will hopefully really help transit agencies with their asset management um, plans and also out in the real world so they can, um, you know, if a bus comes in at the end of a shift, they can they know where to look and service and hopefully turn it around by the beginning of the next uh, the next shift or something like that. However, I'm sure that uh, while we've been Talking about benefits, there are uh, some drawbacks as well to this whole AI regime, if you will. And so are there some uh, things that people should be worried or concerned about as well when it comes to AI and data science and all of that? It was all flowers and roses and, you know, <laughs> rainbows, but it's uh, there are a lot of problems um, and Sometimes those problems can be intractable and, and you just have to kind of accept them. Um, a lot of these problems, very intelligent people are, are working on solving. Um, and a lot of them just wind up becoming from, you know, stem from the operation in which your, um, you know, machine learning process or, or data science study is, is taking place. And um, so, you know, okay, obviously there's some easy upfront uh, issues, like maybe, you know, weaknesses of, of employing AI. And that's obviously like, you know, uh, upfront costs, education. Um, it is an investment. Um, you have to usually build out a system and then start using it. Um, you have to educate your staff as a change management process. Uh, you have to make sure that it's going to actually work well. I was at a lot of talks last CTAA where there's a lot of great ideas floating around of like how to use systems and do these studies. But I really didn't hear any talk about what happens once the funding runs out, like three years later, four years later, like what, you know, so perennial problem. 
And, and a big reason why is like one, one insidious problem of um, like, for example, machine learning system um, is this idea of drift um, in your distributions of your data. So you can imagine like the distribution of, let's say heights for, for males, right? Um, 50 years ago, probably pretty normally distributed. Um, but that same distribution is not the same distribution as height for males today. It's got shifted to the right. It's gone up a little bit. People generally have been getting taller. So this happens to all data um, in the real world over time. There's always shifts in the distribution. And if you're using your machine learning model to predict human height and you build it off of data from 70 years ago, you're going to be off your mark on predicting you know, height for today. And that problem becomes compounded with the with more and more variables that you would use height, weight, you know, blah blah blah. But now take that in a transit point of view. Um, the world is, you know, transit is to facilitate the world um, and its people, and the world and its people are always changing. Um, people move, um, funding changes, programs uh, change, cities change, new roads are built, some are closed, there's weather patterns, what changes to weather. And all this stuff is being used to kind of build out these systems and they kind of work really well perhaps, but over time they degrade. And if you don't have something in place to collect new data and update and keep retraining the system, you're not willing to get into that, then you're going to fail over time. And so people need to really realize if you're going to utilize these really um, you know, complex systems and build these, these uh, rich features into your everyday business workflow, you have to be prepared for the long haul um, or be willing to have good backup strategies when they do wind up failing. Because this is what happens, right? People pay for something, they use it a few times and it sits on the shelf and it's not used anymore. And then it sort of just sits there. Um, or it's used in a completely different way, and or it's misused. So that's that, that's one insidious problem. Um, you know, there's obviously obviously things like uh, security and data privacy concerns. Like if you're dealing with uh, clients that, um, like if you got like a fix or a uh, um, maybe if you have a it would be a good example um, like a demand response service for like Medicaid. Um, yeah, you all of a sudden have HIPAA data, and if you're using a third party software vendor, they're going to need to take that. HIPAA data and ingest it and use it. And you have to be okay with signing like a business service agreement with, with them um, to do that. And you have to trust that they're going to safeguard that data. Um, and then now you all, all of a sudden have to be, you know, ensuring that you're sending that data um, across the internet um, in a secure fashion. And so there's all these like extra things that kind of come into play once you start, you know, using all these services, you start integrating your data with other people's data, sending your data out, who owns your data, you know, do they own, can they use that your data for analytics on their side to do stuff and make money off of it? Like there's always other kind of things and tenuous, tenuous problems that kind of crop up that you never really had to think about uh, once you start working with with people. Um, You know, another one is, um, might be a, a good idea is just the data collection phase. So I think we were talking about this at CTA, Andrew, right? That the uh, large tech company that was trying to uh, build an automated feature or a machine learning algorithm that was essentially taken in a resume and then predict whether this, this, this candidate would be good to continue in, in the hiring process and interview further or to reject them. And that's really great. I mean, it probably saves a lot of time. Um, for any tech job, probably 90% of the people who apply probably aren't qualified or you wouldn't want to, to interview them. And so it really cuts down on that, that bad signal to noise ratio. 
Um, but the problem is, is that if you are at a tech company um, and it, it, probably any given tech company, it's, it's predominantly uh, males who are employed as software engineers there. And so if you're going to use all this data you have, resumes from your current employees to train an algorithm, it might not say in that algorithm, male or female. So machine learning algorithm learns these learns about these resumes in extremely high dimensional space and an extremely high dimensional space where humans can't really put their minds into so well. There are patterns in the data that emerge that allow the machine learning algorithm to understand that, oh, these type of resumes are of one type and these type are another type. And it happens to be that these are male and these resumes are, are perhaps female. And so without even saying that, it can learn those differences and then it will say, well, it seems that we employ mostly male engineers, therefore resumes that are kind of like this are ones we should probably interview further. And so you inadvertently wind up um, you know, rejecting more female applicants because this machine learning algorithm has learned this in the data, even though you didn't explicitly even put that in there. You never had male or female or, or whatnot. Most people don't sit out and say, I'm going to build a machine learning algorithm that does, that does this, right? They're trying to just do something useful. Um, but if you're not really careful, you're not looking at the inputs and the outputs and asking these kind of questions, you can inadvertently you know, harm a, a population of, you know, that, you, that you are supposed to represent and um, you know, facilitate facil- transportation for. And so most of the time, people who have these tools um, and are helping you build them don't understand your data or your population, or they're not, gonna, they're not being paid to understand it. And so unless you come up to them and say, hey, these are problems, this is what our population is like, this is what the services that we're trying to render, who we're trying to help, um, and you're not studying the after effects of putting machine learning model in, into production and, and using it now in the real world, it's very hard to, to suss out these, these issues. Um, and there are issues that, you know, that people, people do care about and they're important, uh, but just takes more time, money and expertise. Um, so, you know, AI is not a, and machine learning data science, is not an end all be all, you know, everything's going to work out perfectly. It does require dedication, maintenance, understanding what's going on. I mean, these things are becoming easier now, but they're still extremely prevalent and they can get out of hand. And we could talk about these kind of data issues and problems with machine learning. There's, there's so many uh, examples. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. But this is part of, you know, it goes part and parcel with any new type of technology that's being employed in the real world. And so it's important to identify and help work against these things and to, uh, you know, fix them. But it would be a lie to say that they don't exist and to not worry about them. And if you don't have a keen sense of observation, you may help a lot of your population, but there are certain parts of your population that you may inadvertently harm. Um, and those may in fact be the ones that are at most risk. And so, uh, you know, that's why these things are kind of uh, should be done with this kind of expert guidance um, as well, because they can ask these kind of questions and, and look for these patterns and identify them. Um, so they can be resolved because, they're going to come up. It's not. It's impossible to build it perfectly from the beginning. You use them and you slowly make them better uh, and improve them, uh, or take them offline if if you see that there's harm being done. But they, it does exist. That's a that's a fantastic point. You know the kind of AI bias and those implicit biases that kind of work their way inadvertently into those models. And can you give us a little bit more of an understanding of particularly for transit planners or mobility managers that might not have kind of the complex knowledge of, you know, what's, what's working kind of behind the scenes. How can someone, um, you know, recognize that there's something is a little off within the model or the machine learning that's going on. Uh, and particularly 
like, correct that? Like, what would that look like in the real world? So that's a, a really great question, and it's certainly one that's, that should be answered through through an example. Um, so maybe one good example would be some of the work that I'm doing right now, um, and I can give you some insight into how I'm thinking through the problem. Uh, I might be a little bit special in the regards that, that I just worked with VTC for so long, and I've become kind of a domain expert in transportation, at least to some, to some degree. <laughs> um, you know, just from working with people uh, uh, closely for so long. But, um, you know, one thing we're trying to do for mobility managers, like I said before, was to produce a um, an accessibility index score. And there's a lot of papers in the research that show you how to kind of um, do this in an urban environment, or there's a lot of different ways to do it in an urban environment. There's equations and mechanisms, the type of data you want to collect. And a very important piece of data is like a walkability, like how far can you walk, right, to a transit stop from, let's say, uh, a U.S. census tract, which might be the equivalent of like, you know, a square mile or two or something like that. Um, And there's lots of ways to analyze that data and look at it. And you can look at like uh, image, uh, satellite imagery and try and predict where, you know, the density of roads in an area, but doesn't say that there's going to be sidewalks there. There's not a lot of sidewalks on the roads in, an, in a rural environment. Like there's an urban environment. You can just kind of guess that, oh yeah, there's there's roads in an urban environment, could be sidewalks most likely. And even that's not a guarantee, but it's, it's, it's a good assumption you could probably make. So if you kind of employ that rationale in building such a system for mobility managers working in a rural area, um, you kind of ignore the fact that even though there are roads, that they may be inaccessible to people who can walk. Um, we can take this a step further even. Okay. Cities, I mean, unless you're like Seattle and, and San Francisco, most cities aren't extremely hilly, right? Um, a lot of them are are flat and walkable and, and you can kind of get around. But in some rural areas, it could be you know treacherously mountainous in a very small amount of area. And so unless you're going to look at your accessibility and then maybe try to include topographical data, right? Like the change in elevation from, you know, what's, what, what, what is the, not just, not just the change in elevation, but what is the um, uh, frequency of change in elevation between a transit stop and, you know, a, a, a census tract area, right? It's, it might be, you're going down 200 feet, up 300 feet, down 50 feet. So you'd say, oh, it's 50 feet of elevation change. It's not. It's a frequency. It's, it's you're going up and then down, up and then down. And so then you have to have some way or you want to have some way to capture that. And that frequency being so large um, for the difference in elevation gain or, or loss when walking to a bus stop really should diminish the accessibility score of that um, census tract to that closest transit stop. And if you're not doing things like that, then you might just say like, oh, yeah, it's accessible. It's only 50, 50 feet of elevation gain or loss. But um, it's going to take a lot longer if you're going up and down, up and down than if you're just going like, you know, down 50 feet or up 50 feet. Um, it doesn't seem as bad. And so understanding that there's a difference in the way cities and roads and, and the way people live in their areas in a rural area are different than in, a semi, in an urban area or even a semi-urban area understanding that difference and understanding that that difference needs to be captured in the data. And if it's not captured in the data, you have to find a way to capture it. That might mean you have to go out and find new data. So as like a big hallmark of data science is that, yeah, I have this transportation data. I have census data. Um, I have data on where roads are and, and how close they are to people's homes. 
but I don't have elevation data. Okay, I have to go get you know U.S. topographical maps and then find a way to take that data and then uh, kind of recast it into being data that I can use in my current analysis. That requires a lot of specialized skill and complexities, and that requires typically time and money to do. But if you don't do that, then you're not really answering the question. And if you're not really answering the question, are you really solving a problem? You might be skirting around it or getting close to it, but you might not be solving it. And if you're not solving it, then why are we changing anything? Because there's no guarantee that the change is going to you know, improve someone's life. A lot of this comes from the medical community, um, having a change in, in, in care. It's extremely hard to have a change in care. Like if you're, if you're a standard of care, if you're caring for a patient and there's some protocol for some disease, um, in order to know whether you should change that standard of care to a new standard, you should be doing um, a lot of uh, double-blind placebo tests and, uh, and really understanding, is this going to help people? And when you're really sure that it will, that's when you make that standard of care change. Um, obviously, we can't get to that degree in transportation practice. It's, it's very difficult. And transportation, there's a lot of factors that go into the stuff. And it's hard to do that. But I am in the firm belief that if you're going to change something, you honestly should have a pretty good understanding of how that change is going to come across and, and, and um, have a way of capturing it. And if it did benefit people, then great. And if not, you should begin to roll it back or understand why it didn't help. Um, and these are very hard things to do, but ultimately we're trying to improve people's lives and saying that's tough isn't good enough. Often you have to kind of be willing to go the extra mile. And, and that's kind of what data science gives you is that is it, it's a, it's a way of looking at solving problems and, um, rigorously going through it, collecting new data and, and making sure what you're doing is really helping people because you have the ability to take data from very many different areas and combine them and understand the statistics of that and to to know, you know, will this have a, a good benefit? But all of that doesn't matter if the question you've asked isn't good and the people you're working with, you know, aren't domain experts. Like you have to have the understanding of the domain. And, you know, so so that's how I kind of take these these things and... Uh, couple them with that knowledge of, you know, the specific to like these rural areas, maybe uh, to solve a problem. We uh, like to focus a lot on outcomes and use the outcomes that you want to um, determine what you do. Uh, So this fits into that, but how uh, from the data science world would you um, put together understanding if you're successful or if you're helping uh, folks? That's a really good question. And it's very difficult um, because honestly, you can look at things like um, increased ridership, right? You can look like your services and see how are they being utilized? Uh, what's the distribution of utilization across a geographic area, right? So if we think that there's going to be a, if we're going to change this one bus route, let's say, and we think it's going to be a better change, then you can look at that previous route's ridership and at the new routes ridership, and that kind of gives you a direct level level of are more people riding the bus there? Um, if yes, then you can begin to also look at it. Okay, how if I've kept everything else the same, how has this change from this one route impacted other routes? As we get more and more um, higher level, it becomes more difficult, right? Because let's say we change that bus route because we want to give more people accessibility to to uh, you know a major hot you know, hospital or a main hospital in a rural community. Um, then we might have to go to the hospital and start looking at their data and, and talking to them, working with them to understand, you know, from this point of time compared to other points in time, um, if we can hold other other things constant, 
Um, like maybe there's like, you know, like, like COVID's a good example. Um, let's say it wasn't COVID, but it was something much smaller. Um, like it was a small outbreak of something in, in, in a rural area. If you could control for the people who went to there um, and control for the outbreak, then you could say, okay, today's um, transportation for this new route versus yesterday's transportation for that new route. Now we can kind of compare them because we're, this is kind of like a scientific uh, study. So we want to hold as many of these um, factors constant as possible. And if we can do that, then we can say, um, has there been a decrease in hospital readmission rates, right? Does this new bus route that goes from the hospital through a couple pharmacies and grocery stores now, um, are people getting off at the pharmacy, getting off at the grocery store, having better access to food and, and, and um, their medicine when they get, uh, uh, when they get, uh, when they leave a hospital, um, is there a big resurgence in readmission rates? Is there less readmission rates? Um, and if you kind of study these things from a high level and you see these health trends going, going down a little bit, it's not that you have necessarily causal information to say like, yes, this bus route was the reason that these great things happened. But you can say there's an association here. This bus route change um, is likely to have contributed some amount to this reduction or this increase in health outcomes that we've seen. What that amount is depends on a lot of stuff, depends on how you look at the data, depends um, on a lot of factors. And there's right or wrong ways to do this. But at this point, you're kind of looking for associations. If you can start to generalize this bus route and you can kind of like recreate it in different communities that are kind of the same, and you still and you start to notice these trends in a similar fashion across lots of areas, then you start to get more and more confident that yes, this is a really good idea that we've done, and this should be you know a, a, a way that we we do things. It's very hard to do, um, and and typically the good point, the good news is, is that unlike treating a patient with medication, which you have kind of a mechanistic level of understanding of what's going on, like how long will the medicine stay in their bloodstream, at what point will it come out, what will its effect be on um, this you know disease. Um, and these kind of more socially sciencey type of approaches to studying things, um, looking for strong associations, having a really good understanding of uh, the domain and uh, being able to hold constant a lot of uh, different factors can oftentimes give you enough of a good insight that what you've done is, is either good or it should be changed or, or rolled back. Um, and this is kind of where in a lot of ways, data science departs strictly from like a scientific endeavor where we're not trying to do big studies, double blind studies, control um, for a lot of factors. We're trying to push different policies and seeing what the effect of those policies are in general across you know people. But it is the problem with like you know political science. Um, the way people voted for the last presidential election is not going to be the same way people probably vote for this presidential election, and so it's very difficult to recreate those studies and, and understand what's going on. Um, so you kind of look for trends and you analyze it from that, that point of view. So that's, that's one kind of way to, to, to look at this. Um, you can also do uh, surveys is a big one too. Um, there's lots of issues with surveys though, you know, self-selection bias. If you, if I walk up to, to both of you guys and Andrew and Eric, you're like, Oh God, he's got a survey. Leave me alone. <laughs> Andrew's like, yes, please ask me. I want to answer questions. Right. So Andrew just wanted to ask, wanted to answer these questions. So he self-selected himself. And, and so there's a slight bias there, but you know, with like good, good, good survey and, and not a lot of people know how to design good surveys. I can tell you that there's an art and a science to it. Um, but uh, uh, a lot of good user surveys can, can go a really long way um, into finding out uh you know, what you've done, if, it, if it's actually helped people. Um, and and that, that's really important. Um, 
you know, you can, you can ask these, uh, they're like the, the, the Likert scale questions, like on a scale of one to five, one to seven, one to 10, most likely, least likely, those kind of questions. If you propose those kind of studies correctly and, and do them right, um, you can oftentimes also find uh, from the people you're trying to service if they felt that that it is better. Ultimately, people are going to see these changes to their transit services and they're going to change their behaviors based on that. So it's really hard to study before and after effects because people's behaviors aren't going to stay the same. They're going to change. So there's, there's a lot of ways to look at this, but, but ultimately you have to kind of uh, take these several types of approaches um, and couple that with that kind of ridership level data and stuff. And then you can begin to get a clearer picture of what's going on. One of my favorite um, surveys that I got was related to an experience with uh, something. I won't allude to what it was just to protect them, but I guess protect is a strong word. Anyway, point being, one of my favorite um, surveys was basically, how was your experience? And the uh, options were basically ranged from great to especially great. And there was no um, no real not so great or bad option. I was like, well played. They know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the best approach to take. Yeah. <laughs> you devise a future you want. <laughs> yeah, talk about rainbows and butterflies. <laughs> Something that I hear often, you know, with the caveat that this is often, you know, kind of national media news cycle kind of take on some of these things. And, um, you know, for the uninitiated, it is kind of fearful, so, a lot of this, since it's unknown. Where, um, you know... Speak to those fears and kind of misconceptions associated with all of this and particularly on kind of the AI and machine learning side, um, you know, there's a lot of talk around people losing jobs or it's kind of cutting cutting out the workforce. Um, but I'm also hearing that there's probably a lot of opportunity and growth to improve processes rather than eliminate things. Speak to what that kind of looks like and, and correct some of those misconceptions if you could. Like with any new technology, there's always winners and losers. We can kind of put that into those very, um, you know, one and zero kind of categories. Um, but it's like with the rise of uh, internet switchboard operators kind of lost their jobs. Um, you know, horse and carriages, right? Their <laughs> horses lost a lot of jobs when when the cars rolled around. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's also immense opportunity that comes out, right? Like um, factory jobs for, for building uh, vehicles and, you know, uh, database administrators for, the, for working with databases on the internet. Um, the problem today is, what, well, one is that we're kind, of living it, we're kind of living through it today. You know, people who live through these big technological changes like the industrialization of America, let's say, um, they probably had these same conversations then that we're having now. I think the big difference is there's, there's, there's three things that are different. One, social media, right? Like everybody knows about everything, everyone's business now, and it's, it's all being plastered on the walls and, and shouted at us as loud as can be. Um, and the velocity of, 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 that, of the messages that come today are so uh, quick and fierce that um, it makes it much more uh, uh, like, like extreme. Um, number two would, would be the idea that... Um, you know, technology t- today is just so much more advanced and it's kind of like a logarithmic curve where it's not linearly growing, but it's kind of growing at a much rapid pace, rapid and more rapid and more rapid pace year after year. Uh, not quite like exponential growth, but um, it's definitely, it's picking up. And, you know, yesterday's technology 
we're building off of for today's technology. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, last decade's technology we're building off of for today's technology. Like it's becoming faster and faster and faster, the the outcomes and never people working on problems and stuff. And so that there's this, there's this really quickness now to, to, to it. Um, and yeah, maybe the, the third, the third thing now too, is, is that before the jobs that were being impacted and the people tended to be in like certain circles or, or, or categories of jobs where now it seems like there's jobs across all strata of society, um, and industries that have the potential to be affected. You know, um, I think that maybe this is like a little bit of a hot take, but if you're a paralegal and you're not very good at your job, it might be time to, to, to look elsewhere. Um, but you know, like I, I, instead of having like 10 paralegals, I could see like the three best paralegals managing a bunch of AI resources that are doing research because they can, they can pose really good queries to the AI system that will find the correct legal documents. They can scan them quickly and submit, you know, send them off to, to the attorney. Um, so it's going to be much more of, you know, people who are starting to babysit these systems and engage and interact with them to extract out the correct information. And then there'll be experts who will then validate those results and make sure that they're correct. Um, so yeah, I think there, there is a lot of scariness in, in the sense of, um, there's a lot of unknowns that are coming around the corner and we're either right now at an inflection point and we're going to, over the next few years, peter out, and it's not going to really grow much until the next big advancement. Um, I say like the next big advancement, like the, the big turning curve in AI was probably around 2012 um, when uh, a model called AlexNet came out. And there is this competition uh, in computer vision where you would have 10,000 classes like uh, Labrador Retriever, Boeing Jet, um, Cocker Spaniel, um, like, you know, where you try and classify uh, 10,000 different classes of images. Very hard to do. A human even doesn't do, you know, a tr- tremendously terrific job at it. These AI systems were only doing, they were okay, they were okay. And then in 2012, when AlexNet came out, it was like a huge improvement, like really big improvement. And that's the first time a deep learning model, which is like another one of those, those, those buzzwords used today, but um, when a deep learning computer vision model um, was being used because there is just so much data available now and um, these deep learning systems are based off of research done back in the 60s even, um, but they're, they have the data now and the computational power to, to use them. And so there's this, this huge windfall of AI systems that kind of came out in research and then that got employed across the world. And we've just been riding that, that, that wave ever since. And so right now we're at this point with large language models and chat GPT, is this going to be kind of the most we can do for a while, or is this just the beginning? And, you know, now that scientists are starting to use chat GPT to help with their research and chat GPT is making contributions um, to scientific research, you know, it's this building off phase and, you know, it, it could be, you know, there's just, just too many unknown unknowns, but there's going to be a, a lot of winners. There's going to be possibly a lot of losers um, from from this. You know, the world will definitely change. Uh, it's not just, you know, in 10 years from now, we'll probably have self-driving cars. It's going to be the redefinition of a lot of businesses and, and the way things are done. Like that's the possibility. And that's scary for a lot of people. Um, and so it's more important now than ever to be at least educated into what's going on and to understand what's happening. Um, and it's going to happen. And if it does happen, you know, it's probably going to happen. And if it does happen to understand 
it and not be afraid of it. I, I have no way, shape, or form can, can predict what's going to happen with technology, and I don't believe people who say that they can. But uh, yeah, I, I, I can. I can kind of imagine a world. It's not like Blade Runner or anything, right? <laughs> like you know, I think transportation. I don't know what it's going to happen there because transportation systems are so difficult to change. And I think that the biggest things that people are going to notice is going to be the, the doing away with, with people that they talk to. It's going to be chat systems that they interact with that can help them and help them in very, help them in very complex ways. Like they'll be able to ask them in a very complex way. Here's my problem. I need to get to this destination with these constraints. Can you help me try and figure out what to do? And that system is going to be able to query much quicker than a human can and read through all the schedules, all the flights or trains or whatever, um, and come up with a solution for the human. And then not only come up with it, then automate the process to change your tickets and do all that stuff. Like, I think that's going to be a big area where people will start to engage in, in, in transit world differently with, with AI. Um, but other than that, a lot of the changes in AI are going to be behind the scenes. They're going to be at the staff level, um, optimization of services, route planning, uh, demand forecasting, predictive maintenance. We've already talked about some of that. Um, you know, that type of stuff will be a little bit more opaque to the end user, like the the, the client, the customers um, of, of the system. But the staff members and those people will definitely um, have firsthand ex- experience of that. And if those people aren't willing to engage, you know, there could be some some issues there uh, for, for them. I don't know to what level that will that will that will creep into the rural areas. Um, might not be for a while because the scale of the system is so small. You can still have people, you know, involved. I mean, you'll start to see some of it, but it won't be this fully automated process that you might see like in cities. It's always fun when the big answer is, I guess we'll see. Um, but with that in mind, um, how can transit agencies prepare for this, uh, big question mark of a future and, um, maybe what should they prepare for if there's a thing we can point to at least that they could prepare for. So difficult to say because there's so many things that like you don't want to waste time and time and money, right? Like a good thing to prepare might be like, you know, to be with education, like hook up with, you know, somebody or, or you know, I don't want to say university, but like somebody who's kind of knowledgeable and, you know, go to a training session or, or begin to talk to your staff and, and get them, you know, understanding like what these things are, how we might employ them. Like don't, don't employ a system without going through it with your staff and, and making sure that they understand what's happening and, and, and how these systems are going to benefit people. Um, I think starting to work these type of things into, into grants could be a good idea. There's probably going to be a lot of grants that are going to want to employ AI, right? Because that's how things work with, with like the EV buzzword, right? If anything was EV over the last like 15 years, you can get money for it most likely. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to get some money for, if you're going to get money to, to put a new system in, make sure some of that money is for education of staff and, your, and yourself. Um, I think that's really important. And it, it, it's very hard because the way these machine learning systems work, it's very difficult to understand what has happened. And unless you are able to explain that to somebody, you kind of sit there dumbfounded and you scratch your head and you're like, what the heck is going on? You ever play that game of telephone as, as little kids, right? Where you like whisper in the ear, right? And it goes around and all of a sudden, like, I, you know, I like horses is turned into like an alligator ate my dog last night, like somehow. <laughs> so imagine if, if, if my input, right? Like I like horses and the output is alligator ate my dog. 
right? Like, like that's silly. But imagine if like this is in the real world and you really want or we're trying to use a system to make a prediction or to do something like predict when a part was going to fail. And then it, it didn't predict it was going to fail and it did fail. Uh, even though all your inputs were like this, the temperature from the sensors and like parts that were being used and miles driven and whatnot. Um, that game of telephone is opaque until you ask every single person, well, what'd you say? Right. And even then it's still kind of opaque to, to the, to the person who maybe, you know, to me who asked that, that who, who put that message in, I, I like horses. And so these systems are, when they get sufficiently complex, they become opaque. So there's, there's two types of, or there's, there's different types of machine learning. There's some machine learning, like you probably remember from high or high school math, like Y equals MX plus B, right? Like linear regression, these kind of things. Um, there are systems that utilize those kind of deterministic ways of doing uh, machine learning and those systems are completely transparent. You can change your Ys and find or your Xs and find out exactly what that Y is going to be. And you can understand how it happened. Uh, same thing for like a decision tree, right? Do I make over 10K or under 20K or under 10K? Um, does my last name begin with an S or not? Like you can go through these trees and, and branches and you can see all these decision points. These systems are very simple. I like simple. Simple is good. But they're 100% explainable to the end user what happened. But for things like ChatGPT or these computer vision systems or these really complex AI machine learning systems, what's going on inside, how you got from I like horses to an alligator ate my dog is a more or less opaque system. I mean, there's research that's being done and they're trying to understand better what's happening. But by and large, that stuff is mostly opaque and you have no idea why why it happened. Um, And that's very hard. Imagine if you had an AI doctor and it said, oh, I'm sorry, you have cancer. And you're like, I'm sorry, why is that? And they're like, I don't know, but I predicted that you have cancer, right? Like, it's like, if you can't understand what's going on in the system, it's immensely frustrating. You don't know how to fix it if, it's, if there's something wrong. The only way you know how to fix it is to give it more and more inputs and evaluate the outputs and try and find patterns. But that's very hard to do. And if you have a group of people who have paid a lot of money to use a system and they don't understand what's happening now, it's immensely frustrating. And you know what they do? Let's go back to paper and pen or some other system and put it on the shelf. Who cares? I don't want to deal with it because they live in the real world of I've got to get these buses. I've got to get these people. I've got to get this stuff done today by the end of the day at this time or the customer, the client's going to suffer. Um, they don't have time to say, whoa, okay, hold the press. Let's, let's change some stuff. Let's, let's look at it a little bit. Let's, let's do a little bit of a study. Let's take a few weeks and then we'll come back. Right? They don't have time to do that crap. And so they're going to just not use it. And so that is one big challenge is how do you keep a system that's good and is usable, maintainable, and it continue, continues to be used. Just because you have a hammer doesn't mean all your problems are nails. Like be very uh, judicious with what type of technology you employ, what problems you're trying to solve. Have a plan. Understand before you put it into production, like you start using it in the real world. Try and make it fail and see how you'd react to that and how you would change it. Um, use systems that are that are simple. If you can solve problems in a deterministic way where you kind of understand what's going on, even if the solution is a little bit less good, right? Like let's say uh, accuracy is just one way to look at the out, to, to, to measure the outputs of a machine learning model, like 96% accurate with an extremely complex model or 89% accurate with an extremely simple model. That's going to cost one-tenth the cost and be very easy to change and explain and see what's going on. I take the 89% every day. There's always a cost benefit ratio to this type of stuff. Um, but you have to kind of think about it in terms of 
what's going to do the most amount of good? Is it going to be used? How is it going to help people? How can we understand it? And simple approaches to machine learning tend to do a, a good job at that. But they're also sometimes can be very hard to build because it requires you really understanding the domain. You just can't throw data at it and say, you're so complex and so good at this job, job that the system can just give me something useful. These simple systems require a lot of finesse and, and understanding. So these are some of the issues with, with machine learning and, and, and data science and stuff um, to, to kind of think about. But um, they're absolutely there, um, but they have to be overcome if you're going to use it. You just can't uh, ignore it. Yeah, it's pretty clear that these, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. I <laughs> can't tell the future. Uh, if we did, I'm sure we wouldn't be here right now. But, uh, um, but you know, what we would say is the, the future of technology and AI, well, it, it's here and it's, it's evolving and it's important to, they're already being deployed really um, and used. And it's important for transit agencies and mobility managers to kind of lean in, explore, and kind of get a sense of, of how this can be used and better utilized for your operations and to meet your goals. But it certainly does come with um, quite a lot of challenges, but um, that's the world of transit. I'd say, you know, one important thing to, to add is to uh, do your research, um, find opinions. Um, if you want to begin using data science, AI, and, and, and these kind of things in the real world, it is a big you know, not as hard as to dip your toe in the water. You have to kind of jump into the deep end in some sense. I mean, there's ways you can kind of do small stuff. Um, but ultimately it's, it's very, um, it's, it's, it can be very difficult. So one, one thing that we're going to be working on at, at a VTC is this idea of a kickback. Um, a kickback is when you send a schedule to a volunteer driver and the volunteer driver says, Nope, not going to do this or don't want to do that. And they send stuff back and that winds up creating more work for staff members after reschedule stuff and redo things. It's a huge pain in the butt. And so one thing that we can do is we can say, okay, so here's a problem is that you don't want to, you're scared to assign things to people for fear of a kickback. So what if I could give you a probability that given this schedule, this volunteer driver is 42%, 82% likely to kick this back. That might cause you from saying, okay, maybe we need to change the schedule around a little bit to make it less likely for them to kick back. And when a a staff member thinks of a kickback, it's very much personal to them. They might say, oh, I know this, this driver doesn't like driving this person, or they don't like driving kids, or they don't like going to this part of town, or they don't like driving for six hours. They only do like three hours, right? Or they don't want to go before lunch. You can kind of get a feeling for this is going to be a kickback. But in reality, what makes a volunteer driver want to kick something back can be expressed beautifully in much, much higher dimensional space. And so we can say there's things that, that, that you wouldn't even know. It's not until you let a computer system look at thousands and thousands of trips with hundreds or even thousands of volunteer drivers, and you analyze what trips are kicked back, which ones aren't. There's so much more information there than just one staff member can hold in their head. And this is a pretty simple system at the the end of the day. It just requires us to collect certain data that we weren't collecting before and then to use it and build a system off of it, like custom system. But if I can do that, and when you're going to assign a schedule, I can give you just a little bit of a number there, you know, with like maybe an icon or something, it might cause you to change that schedule a little bit to make it 
potentially better for the drivers so that you don't get a kickback and you don't have a disruption of service. Um, and so this isn't like a huge system. It's not changing the way we do transportation. It's not, you know, this big overarching chat GPT model thing. It's just a very simple way of collecting some data, running a, a small model that's easy to update. And then um, we keep track of when you do it, when you do assign it to this driver, are they kicking back now? Or are they not kicking back? Like we want to keep tracking data in the future constantly. And then we want to keep updating that model every few months maybe and keep it up to date. But it's a very simple system and it's solving an extremely specific task. It's extremely specific, the task it's solving. But that task is so important because it helps improve the staff's um, you know, lives during their day-to-day um, work. And so this, I, I could not come to VTC as an outside source and been like, I've got the answer to your kickback problem. I wouldn't even know what a kickback problem is. It's not until you really work with these users and work with people hand in hand and closely and identify and ask them what their angst and problems are that you can begin to say, oh, I believe I can solve that problem in a computational way using machine learning and data science. And so when these when users want to or, or organizations want to employ machine learning data science, think about really what are your problems? What are the small pain points? Not these overarching like, you know, ideas, I want to change the world, but like what are the small pain points and what data do I have or what's the, the business process currently being employed that's causing that pain point? And that's a good place to start with trying to employ systems like this is to start very small Um that can have and yield greater success for you down the road than wanting to change and uproot an entire system and your business practices. Change management is a really important part here um, of your staff and how you work day to day. Um, because any change to that can, can cause further disruption to services, which further um, you know, hurts clients and, and customers. So I think that would be like one of the number one key advices I could give um, is to make sure you have those good questions and you can work with people who are technologists uh, and don't put the onus on them to solve your problems if they don't know your problems. Um, that that definitely has to be, you have to be part of the conversation. If they don't want to talk to you or they don't want to, to care about those things, then no. Like the, if somebody comes to you with a solution, no. <laughs> you come to them with problems and they create solutions for you. That's how that should work, especially at smaller organizations in a rural area um, where there's more uniqueness than like major metropolitan transit systems where there's much more generalizabilities you can have. Cal, do you have any... Um kind of resources or suggestions on where transit planners and managers could look for more information related to any of the content that we talked about today? So like I've got I've got a ton of resources, but they start to get very like complex very quickly. So I think what you're looking for are like case studies and white papers probably. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have stuff that's like good for, for small organizations or rural stuff. I mean, I've got my, my stories and things I, 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 my experiences and people I've, I've spoken to, I can take a look though. Um, that being said, if anybody doesn't want to learn more about the trend of, of AI and machine learning or, or also know more about this stuff, like I have lots of resources I can share um, with regards to that as, as well. We can add those to the show notes. Thank you. Oh no. I mean, I could, I could, we can go on and on for, for a long time. Um, but uh, I mean, there's gotta be a part two, <laughs> but uh no, I think I think I think that's pretty probably pretty pretty good for now. I think we didn't get too in depth with anything. It was a pretty good overview, and hopefully, people will want to learn more and you know have, have learned will be able to learn something. Thank you very much, Kyle, for sharing all of this with us. Uh, there's a lot to 
wrap our heads around. And so we hope our listeners uh, see this as just the beginning. And you know, we we gave an overview, and then uh, we hope you all start to really dig into what we've covered and uh, start playing around and experimenting with how you might be able to apply this to your own systems. So thanks again, Kyle, and thank you all for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you guys for the invite. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody learned something. I'm always happy to discuss this stuff or be of help to anybody. I definitely learned some stuff. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>